0: Chris Lee, uh, author of Origin Stories and also uh, heavily involved in putting content on Outside Right. That's W-R-I-T-E dot co dot U-K. That is a hell of a pun.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I spent some time thinking about like, OK, what's because it started as a blog, right? So the right bit kind of fit in. So I said, can I call it right back or like right? You know? I thought Outside Right is a sort of number seven position really, isn't it? In uh, traditionally on the right wing, I thought I'll quit that. And it started as a blog and it became more known as uh, for the podcast, although I try and do as much long form as I can. It, t- it takes so much longer to actually sit down and write something than yeah. it does to, um, to actually podcast, weirdly. But the, at the same time, I've, I've had quite a lot of guest content. Now, I welcome any guest content, by the way, as long as it's unique and um, that people want to go go ahead and, and write. And if it's good, good quality, I'll, I'll stick it up. And I've had... You know quite a few recently so um yeah there's still still some writing to be had
0: uh we've spoken in the first half mainly about the football history section and the pioneers that you detail in your book which is out now on pitch is it 12.99
1: I believe so, and I don't know what the Kindle edition is, but um, I hope you get your money's worth. I think you will, because it's, uh, like I said, four years of research and 380-odd pages. So you'll you'll never struggle in a pub quiz after reading it, believe me.
0: No, I went went to a pub quiz that Michael Cox won, and I thought that was a bit of a busman's holiday, because it's Mm -hmm. not fair, because this is the guy, Michael Cox, who has written the book. On tactics, tactics and about the mm. recent football history. Uh, do you have a, a book that is the most thumbed in your own football library?
1: My favourite ones are actually the personal lived experience ones. So, my, if I two, both are ironically written around the same time and both feature in Italy. And so, obviously, Season with Verona by Tim Parks my favourite. Uh, and it's followed very, very closely by The Miracle of Castel de Sango, which, if you, people haven't read that, um, you know, get on it. Basically, well, it's, it's wonderful.
0: I haven't only because it feels like it's the Erling Haaland of football literature. It's the, the quickest. And uh, Joe McGuinness has passed away now, but I haven't read mm. it. I thought my dad had a copy. No, no. I'm sure dad mm. had a copy. I think he took it to his new house and it's probably in storage, annoyingly. But when I get mm. it out of there, I will stick it on the shelves of the football library because it is. It's uh, many, many people have referenced it. I think I might have to get 12 copies for the library um, because mm. it's about football, but it's about culture and it's about travel and that's everything that uk also does. So you're kind of a spiritual descendant yeah. of Joan Guinness.
1: Yeah, kind of. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> I mean, it, it, my football writing actually goes back to the 90s when I was a student. I was at university in Madrid, so my degree was actually in politics. Um, I was three years here and I did a year out in Madrid and um and I had to pick a subject to write my 10,000-word thesis on. And bear in mind, it's the late 90s. Uh, there wasn't that much football writing around. I think Football Against the Enemy was out. Yeah, some um, But, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then there was one uh, in Spanish, which was very helpful, about Madrid-Barca. So, but my, I thought, right. How can I combine what I'm interested in? Uh, bear in mind, a lot of my colleagues were doing things like fishing policy in, in Galicia and things like this. And I, I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to write about that I'm interested in and, and know things about? So I basically just said, like, okay, what about politics and identity in Spain uh, as expressed through football and regional identity? Um, and it's kind of so this was late 90s, um, and obviously case study of Madrid Barça. So I got to speech to journalists from from both Marca, which is the Madrid-based paper, and Sport, which is the Barcelona based one and then obviously there was some, like some reading around that as well uh, and it was just fascinating cause obviously the, the, the athletic club story comes in from the Basque country uh, and what that means to them and uh, even just to down to a, a local level Valencia what's that what does Valencia mean to, to the people in the community of Valencia and, and what do and Anderuthian teams you know mean like Betty's playing in the colours of Anderuth, uh, Anderuthia although they got their colours from Celtic apparently so you know the green and white so you know th- these are sort of all Really interesting kind of explorations that I was doing. Then I did kind of withered did away. Didn't, didn't think about writing about football again. Like I said, I was just going around with work, watching a lot of football, seeing a lot of people writing about it, talking about it. I thought, well, why don't. Do, I do this as well because I need. But partly because I work in social media, I've got to sort of practice what I preach and just practice social media anyway, content creation and stuff. So I just started, you know, writing about different things that people weren't writing about. I think there's enough people talking about you know, the game as it is and having opinions on who should be left back at Man City and things like that. And I was like, I've got no interest in that. I've got no kind of platform to talk about that really. I've, you know, I'll just, I'll just kind of just looking at places like Royal Antwerp, like Genoa, like, uh, Rayo Vallecano and I'll, you know, try and bring that to the, to the online page and, and express my, what, what this club means to the local community and just, uh, uh, and to the country at large and to, to, to football's larger narrative and just sort of take it from there, really.
0: Ah, oh, that reminds me of Matt McGinn who has moved to Spain to write his PhD thesis. Has he been in touch with you?
1: Mm. Oh, he's been, yeah, I mean, he's, he's done some guest posts when he was in South America and he's been on about it. We talked about the, uh, the Iceland book as well. So, yeah.
0: Just smashing, because it was, we did the whole show and then Matt said, oh, by the way, I'm just packing up and moving to Spain because it, it did mm-hmm. seem odd that he was doing a PhD over here about Spain and he's, he had to move over there. But I wished uh, he, will, he is welcome back any time uh, into this football library. So you will have spent a lot of time over the last five years reading books, talking to people, researching. But when you're not doing that, you are, <laughs> busman's holiday again, you're watching football. Uh, there is a football travel tab and a non-league tab. Um, yes. There are a lot of guest posts, non-league, Chesham United, which is very, very close, ah. just down the Met line. Uh, and also Barnet. I liked the guest post of the Barnet fan because Barnet play, yeah. but they're in Harrow. They play in Stanmore, which is in Brent. Yeah, so they don't play in Barnet anymore. So what is Barnet? And no wonder Barnet is oh, exactly. struggling. At, you know, they're at the very, very bottom of uh, the the uh, national league now. They're going to go down.
1: Well, here's the. Thing. Well, I did my piece on London football clubs, and then someone had a you know, said, "Well, well Barnet should feature." I said, like, "Where does Barnet? where does London start and stop?" Because like, I don't have Bromley in there. I don't have like, you know um Sutton United it's like where is uh, same with Barnet and even Watford Watford, Hertfordshire right so it's it's like you know I just kind of had to sort of draw the line somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> so um yeah I mean there's a reason I, I get a guest post for those parts of the world it's because it's actually I, I'm based south of the river um and so I don't really go that far north so often but uh as in you know North London, it's quite hard to get to Barnet for me.
0: Yeah, because but, you're um, near a Brighton. Uh,
1: well, I was living in, in South London. My newest club was Dulwich Hamlet for many years. Ooh, um, which I may a regular. regular uh, Yeah, it's a great place. Really good fan base. I would recommend it when everyone goes, you know, anyone who's in, in the London area. Not so, just
0: because of the fans, but the this is a club Gavin Rose has been manager for years and he brings through players into the non-league who are then sold on. And Dulwich have mm. a connection with Zamora, Noble, Ferdinand, who have got a housing... Uh, trust, and they were opposing buying the stadium because there was all kinds of gubbins for the last few years about it the was, stadium, yeah. and that has now been sorted. and Dulwich are doing fine, very good non league yeah, club. Uh, I think actually, they found the level.
1: I actually played there once as a um, on a charity match. You know, not not for Dulwich. I mean, it was you know it held at Champion Hill, uh, and so that was uh, I was played eight minutes in goal. I, to, I was out on the pitch and I had to fill it fill in. Goal for eight minutes, and I kept a clean sheet and made a couple of good saves. Oh, so I, of like, I think I've kept a clean sheet. See that on the TV. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's good. Um, you say that you love the unscripted drama of football. Uh, we've spoken about mm-hmm. those six minutes of Maradona. You'd have to say that's magnificent. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any mm-hmm. other memorable pieces of drama, perhaps involving Queens Park Rangers?
1: I think the drama with Queens Park Rangers has often been um, away from the pitch. <laughs> yes, but yeah. I mean. I, again, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I allude to this every so often, but I've got, I, I was attracted to Queen's Park Rangers by the kit rather than the, um, the, uh, the, I've got no connection with West London whatsoever, like, like I said, South, or my family's East London or South London, um, and it was Millwall, and obviously I was never taken there because my dad's like, you hey, know, it's not, <laughs> he stopped going in the 60s, um, and it was like, you know, because it just became troublesome, um, and so I didn't actually go at all for a long time. And I took a couple of Dutch friends and I allude to this in the Dutch chapter, when um, I took them to Millwall because um, they're the only game on in London in the, in the couple of days that they were visiting, and it was and I'd avoided going to the New Den and I took them there. it's quite interesting because obviously you can know, imagine as Dutch people speak perfect English, but I've got some new words in the yeah. vocabulary there.
0: <laughs> in a fun accent, um, yeah. I think I went to Millwall. Here's a, here's a good story. I went with my brother and we turned up and he went, "Have you got the tickets?" I said, "No, I thought you'd get them." I went, but how are we going to get in the Watford end? So we sat in the Millwall end, which was half empty, Watford scored, and I got up as if to say something, Richard, sit down, and I just, I started swearing, I said, that's not the right thing to do, Uh, it was like that Richard Aowadi bit in the IT crowd, but watching as a Watford fan, in the Millwall bit, no colours, I haven't been, because Rich lived right next to the stadium. Uh, um, Millwall. I hope they do well. Not with this goes out after Watford play Millwall. Mike Calvin is a lapsed Watford fan, who I don't um, know if you've read Family, his excellent book about Millwall. I haven't. no. Oh, it's wicked because he his mate Kenny Jackett was the manager, so he spends a oh, year yeah,
1: there's a Watford connection there. Yeah, as well.
0: absolutely, uh, and it's an update of the glory. It's kind of a cross between the football man and the glory game, and it's one of the best books of the. Uh, of the last twenty years, but you've been to you say one FA Cup final, one Europa mm. League final, and one mm-hmm. World Cup. Was that the women's World Cup, or have you been to a men's World uh,
1: Cup? Oh no, so yeah, no men's World Cup. Brazil 2014. I've also been to Euros as well, 2016. Yeah, well, uh, FA Cup final 2001, which was at Cardiff, and I.
0: Michael think Owen that game. Is
1: my favourite. Sorry, the, the Michael, Michael Owen game, game. Yeah, again. Late turnaround, and uh, that was at the other end. But we, it was absolutely wonderful game. Uh, last 15 minutes anyway. But well, I, I really like. That what is now known, I think, is the Principality Stadium was then Millennium Stadium, uh, and I just think it's wonderful. I, I would have, I would have had the semi-finals there if not the final, and uh, had the final at Wembley. But uh, obviously, uh, Wembley's kind of got a higher capacity, but that's such a great atmosphere. If you're not being, uh, I disagree been to the principality?
0: because in 2002, Dad for some reason took my brother and me to Cardiff to watch Spurs because I was a Spurs mm. supporter then against which I shouldn't really say but he took us to Spurs so we got tickets it was Spurs Blackburn for about 10 years I thought Robbie Savage played in that game that's not the case it was Andy Cole uh, Matt Jansen uh, it rained all the way there and all the way back and it was a typical Cardiff day and I remember uh, nothing about the game no- maybe Matt Jansen's goal but if uh, I'd have if you'd have told me when I was 14 to appreciate the stadium I would have I do hope to go back to that stadium
1: well, it's central. It's right by the station. It's across. You know, you can see it since you come out of the station, don't you? So you've got yeah. all the nice pubs in central Cardiff, um, and then straight into the ground. Brilliant acoustics. Brilliant atmosphere. With a full house. Uh, I just think it's a wonderful uh, venue. Oh, I have seen a rugby match there actually, but it was Barbarians game. It wasn't like a Wales international, but that would be fascinating, I'm sure. Yeah. Going back to your point. Um, yeah, I went to Brazil 2014. I uh, got three tickets. Uh, sorry, three matches at the Maracanã. The second of which, well, the first of which featured. Uh, a great messy goal against um, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and I think he took it round a couple of people and shot from outside the box and that was fascinating because obviously it was with Brazil Brazilian fans and every so often when the Argentinians jumped up to sort of start singing they were immediately shouted down by the majority Brazilian crowd, and <laughs> uh, they kind of waving five fingers at them, saying "Penta yeah. which means like five times champions, because Argentina just won the two World Cups and been in the other like three finals or whatever. Um, so yeah, that was great to see a Messi goal. Uh, the second game was better. It was when Spain were eliminated by Chile, and the Chilean fans absolutely. Well, I did a whole podcast on Chile recently. With Adam Brandon, who's there, based there, and I just thought they're the best national fans I've ever come across. They're so much fun. Um, they were just like boisterous, and, you know, in a friendly way, all the way from Nipanema and Copacabana beaches, all the way on the train up to the Maracaná, in the Maracaná, desperately trying to get hold of tickets on the outside and just hanging out outside, thousands of them outside. And I was among them. And uh, silly of me, I have a, a Spanish shirt on you know like a famous the Osborne bull you know that one sort of the black ball outline that you get um because obviously having lived in spain for a while i've, I've kind of you know, kind of supporting them and but they'd already been beaten by holland 5-1 in the first game yeah which was outstanding <laughs> yeah and you just played them off the park mm-hmm. and, and um, beat them and then um again because it's a brazilian crowd uh diego costa was getting a lot of um
0: Oh, of course, kind of yes. From, yeah, because yeah, he was that.
1: born in Brazil, wasn't he? So, yeah. um, uh, and then the first third match was, um, Russia against Belgium, which was a bit of a sort of damp square, really, to finish on. You know, again, it was just a pleasure to have been there uh, to see the different sort of fans arriving and leaving within Rio just in 10 days and, and going to places like you know, running down Flamengo Beach, Botafogo, uh, these are clubs you would have heard of, um, you know, seeing the Fluminense. Uh, Vasco de Gama flags on the beach. And, and it was just, yeah, it was just a really great setting for a World Cup. I don't, I mean, again, uh, the the economics of it from from Brazil's point of view is, is is obviously a bit of controversy. And then they had the Rio Olympics two years after that as well. But, uh, you know, as a visitor, I really thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: You were aware that the Maracanã will be renamed the Edson Arantes Don Asquimento Stadium. Is that right? I think they're naming it after, I don't know if they're going to call it the Pele Bowl or uh, the Edson Arantes, etc. Uh, something I always remember, I, I suppose the other thing I should remember, is that Ronaldo, Phenomeno Ronaldo, originally called Ronaldinho, yeah. Little Ronnie.
1: He was at the 94 World Cup, wasn't he? Yeah, because there was another Ronaldo, wasn't there? This was before my like, like time. He was like Little Ronaldo.
0: 94 was just before my time, and I was thinking, because it was in America, I wouldn't have been able uh. to watch anything. I certainly don't remember watching it, or having it on, or Dad having it on, in the old house. Uh. So, 98 was my first World Cup. And that was, okay. of course, the Beckham semi The last four years, have uh, seen England's stock rise slightly. And we're going into the Euro. Would you say semi-finals again would be minimum for England? Yeah,
1: it's, it's difficult, really, because I think the Euro is often harder to win than the World Cup. And I know it's a different format this time because it's kind of not in a particular country like it used to be and I prefer that setup, up, actually, to be honest, than this sort of spinning around. But we'll see how it works. I don't know. It's kind of like a bit of a false testing ground because obviously you've had the delay. I've got a funny suspicion that England are going to lose to Scotland because that's kind of, it's due.
0: Wouldn't that, that be of... amazing? <laughs> and then they'll have an independence referendum the next day?
1: Well, exactly. That's a what I mean. It's, it's going to be, it, it almost feels predestined anyway. So I'm kind of resigned to that. I'm not that big a follower of the national team, to be honest. Once you've been seen enough tournaments with England, you know, or you should know, that the chances are they won't. Advanced beyond the quarters or semis, people should never go in with an expectation they're going to win a tournament. It's just a nice surprise when they do better than yeah. what you're used to.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> like and last uh,
1: time around, you know.
0: Do you know that Three Lions? Yes, it's going to be reissued again. Twenty fifth year, twenty fifth anniversary of Three Lions. will we yeah, hear yeah, yeah. a lot yeah, of yeah. that. The team who beat England in the semi-finals at the World Cup 2018 are mm-hmm. uh, Croatia, whom I remember mm-hmm. through Euro '96. It was Daval Shuke. But I've seen the blue skies of what's what's the city in the south of Croatia?
1: Uh, Dubrovnik. Dubrovnik,
0: yes, correct. Uh, yes. A friend of mine was out there. Game of Thrones there. was filmed. Glorious wow. weather there. What's it like watching football out there?
1: Well, I went to Zagreb, the capital, and I've watched football out there. Actually, it was um, when I went with work again. It was <laughs> a sort of so, shoehorned a match in on the Sunday afternoon, but it was actually. Um, Dinamo Zagreb were away. Uh, I, think, I can't remember somewhere else. I think they might have been at Hajduk actually that weekend in Split. Uh, so I had to watch their B team, uh, who play in the sort of second division or third division or something against um, another regional team, next to the uh, Maximir Stadium, which is uh, absolutely iconic ground um, in the history of Yugoslav football, anyway, or Croatian football. Uh, and if you, going back to us saying the most listened to podcast, uh, it's where Zoran Boban um, Kicked out a, a police officer, and, and and you know many credit with kind of the moment where things literally kicked off with with um, you know in in the sort of breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, he was banned from the 1990 World Cup mm-hmm. uh, as a result of that, and so it's a really sort of famous kind of moment and a famous setting, Maximus so, But the, the reserve team player right next door. So uh, I ended up not going. Yeah, walking past the Maximir um, and then going to kind of watch the game next to it. But Hajduk, I mean, everywhere you go and Split, there's references to Hajduk. They're a really iconic club. They're one of the oldest ones in in Yugoslavia. Uh, Former Yugoslavia, straight Croatia as well. Uh, I haven't been to Belgrade yet or Sarajevo, the other sort of former Yugoslav um, kind of footballing centres. But I do want to. And there's a podcast I've got um, on on the Belgrade Derby. Growing up with a Croatian team, when I was a, a student in Madrid, I used to go to Real Madrid and we had um, that, that, uh, Davos Shuker up front, oh, yeah. um, you know, alongside um, Raul, and he was he was just a phenomenal player. And like I said, he scored one of the goals of the tournament, so you were 96, didn't he? That little lob over Peter Schmeichel. Yeah, remember so it was it. like a chip, really, almost, wasn't it? With back back spin and everything at Sheffield uh, Wednesday, bro.
0: I think he just he watched the ball sail over his head. It's a treasure trove. This section of OutsideRight.co.uk, England, Germany, Spain, Italy, South America, Uh, Portugal, France, Belgium, Eastern Europe, Holland, uh, Scandinavia, Scotland. Uh, Let's go to Belgium because Paddy uh, Barkley, I was talking with Paddy Barkley, I said, how are you going to make Scottish football great again? And he said, well, follow what Belgium and Holland are doing. Same size nations, Belgium are number one in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. When you go to someone like Royal Antwerp, do you think mm-hmm. that it's because Belgians are just being exported? One of their great exports is the footballer. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, the, whatever they're doing at youth level seems to be working. Because Royal Antwerp was the last Belgian club to appear in a, a European uh, major trophy final. That was, I think, 93 or 92, wasn't it? The Cup Winners' Cup final. Um, at Wembley and they have, obviously so from a club point of view they haven't really excelled uh, in those last sort of 30 you know, odd years um, but bear in mind earlier in the, in the 80s on the left we in the finals um, from a club level I guess they probably lose their best players to, to play abroad purely because of finance Money. Uh, as, as the power shifted towards the big leagues and, and the talent's going to get discovered fairly quickly and that's what, you know that's one thing among many things that's changed uh, as well as the money dynamic is the scouting and the availability you'll see clips on YouTube or Instagram and people immediately on the radar of the scouts and it didn't used to be that way when you know it was all these secrets you know and that's why great players could develop in countries like Belgium and create great teams and, and, and Croatia and it was all a bit of a secret and you could look forward to these World Cups and, and discover players you'd never heard of really via stick albums, albums via, via TV but now everyone's kind of you know, there are no secrets everyone's discovered when they're still a teen and they're sort of snapped up by the big clubs. Yep. And I guess that's the case for Belgium.
0: The first thing I did in the lockdown last year was take up Miles Jacobson's offer of downloading Football Manager. And when I saw that Christian Cabacelli was worth £18 million, I shut the game down. Because I like mm. Cabacelli, who plays for Watford in Belgium. He's not worth £18 million. Um, and some of the big players nowadays... It's, What is £100 million? How much is Mino Raiola going to get for selling Erling Haaland to his dad's mate's club? He's going to go to Man U. Surely he has to go to Man U because Barca can't afford him. And it's just that level is ridiculous. And to bring it back to Man U, it was interesting that Antwerp was used as a feeder club for United until very recently. Vitesse does the same at Chelsea. City have got their network but doesn't that dilute the brand? Does it dilute it or strengthen it?
1: The brand of Belgium? Uh,
0: the brand of Antwerp and um, and of just Dutch and yeah, that kind of football. And indeed, Liverpool are using Rangers as a tryout for Steven Gerrard. I think Rangers in Europe next yeah. season is going to be very interesting as well.
1: I mean, going back to your thing about the value of players, to be honest, it's all relative to the market. And if, yeah. If- if the money is there, people are buying it, then, then so be it. And if you look at American sports, they're still paid less than a lot of American sportsmen. I tend to not, not get, get too wound up by the economics, just accept that's the way it is. The team with the most money is going to typically win. And that's why I really like stories like Leicester. But at the same time, let's not forget Leicester also have... Oh, you know, the romance
0: um, of the Thai well. billionaire. Well, How romantic that story. I mean, they're second yeah. nowadays, which is... It, I think they have punched above this season. Because they've got a great manager.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they've got a team ethos, and that's good. I mean, that's the thing. It's good to see them come back. It wasn't necessarily just a flash in the pan. I mean, for a while, they looked like they had a chance of doing quite well, like last year as well. So if they can get consistently top four, top six, and this goes back to what we was saying before, these, these clubs that think they're top six, and uh, side Tottenham and this in this particular. Um, who was top six in, uh, in the 1980s, or even in the point when the Premier League was founded in 1992? Everton are just coming back into it now, but they, in the 80s, they were they would definitely have been top five in top six in the UK. Yeah, they were. Uh, yeah. In, England in terms of, you know, and Man City would have been, I mean, they were. You know, I remember, I remember, here we go, um, <laughs> as uh, one of my local teams, Gillingham, um, being 2-0 up against Man City in a third, what, it's a third tier playoff final, uh, not, you know, what was that, 99?
0: Yeah, so, Mickey Weaver.
1: Yeah. You know, Man City were in the third tier. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, Man City came back, but and got promoted, but, um, you know, they they. Have it's, it's only recent success for them, likewise with Chelsea. Chelsea were very troubled in the 80s, it's in it, it swings around about football, it's all mm-hmm. cyclical.
0: So, you were at the uh, th- that was a League One playoff, as was second division. You've been to two championship playoff finals,
1: no, was, well, that was the third tier, wasn't it? Back in I don't know what it was called in those days, I lose track, but I wasn't at it, I was just watching it on TV. I've been there, yeah, a couple of playoff finals. Um, Queen's Spot Rangers, recent one which was against Derby County sorry I won't uh, mention Ricotta, that um,
0: sorry, oh sorry. no I will mention that, that was Zamora
1: yes yeah, so it was Zamora, last kick of the game and then uh, domin- a um, uh, Derby completely dominated that game yep. um, uh, 2014 I think it was and it was, Queen's rage was really, just really hanging in there and it was just a slip at the back if I remember correctly and um, and he just did a nice volley into the corner, uh, I think it was the 80 ninth minute if not the 90 or up uh, and that was it and it was it's a bigger prize in many ways that you don't uh, you know like, like a, a trophy etc but it's kind of um, uh, you do get a trophy I suppose for winning it mm-hmm. but um, it's the chance to go up to the top flight the richest league etc I mean, even just it's a the holiday. fact that you won the match on the day it's a combination yeah. of a season yeah it's a great it's it a great day out if you win it's terrible if you lose
0: was this the season with Barton and Cranshaw? possibly I think it was because I went I, I think remember. it was Boxing Day 2013 I went to watch Watford and Cranshaw just looked like a world class again to circle back to Croatia he looked like a top, uh, top player, Nico Crenshaw. I mean, there is so, there's so much stuff uh, at outsideright.co.uk and the affiliated podcast every Monday, uh, which has been uh, your favourite, uh, the, the joy, the most joyous uh, recording that you've podcasts. made? Yeah. <laughs> or the most um, joyous few?
1: I really enjoyed the one on the former East Germany uh, with Alan McDougall because he'd written basically this book on, on, on East German football. I, I don't know much about it. And it's, yeah, I usually gravitate towards sort of Mediterranean countries, um, for my interest, but, uh, and not so much towards sort of colder countries, but I've becoming a big fan of Germany in the last 15 years or so. And a lot of that is because of the football and the accessibility of it and the fun of it. And also because Germany is so fascinating as a place and nowhere more fascinating than Berlin itself. You know, he's written about, you know, how, how under the GDR, sort of, you know, the East Germany, um, you know, how football clubs were... took someone like fell Leipzig, which was the, uh, the first winner of the German championship um, back in 1903, became Lokomotiva Leipzig, you know, named after the the railway works. And all the teams that became like, you know, Chimie, which is the chemical works, and they had the, the tractor team, tractor-making teams and the motor teams and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And there was obviously, you know, the communist influence on that. Uh, in east Germany, and obviously the... Teams of the Stasi and the, the the military and all these sort of things. It was just fascinating, to sort of listening. It's one of the most popular, uh, and it was delivered with such kind of passionate interest. I suppose uh, the Yugoslavia one again, because I think similar to Germany, it's a country that's been fragmented uh, and kind of, I guess, been affected by two world wars in that particular and, and, and a separation. So it's very similar sort of history. And how that impacted the football? And who's, which brands have survived? I guess through that. Um, that period in which have been kind of collectivised and, and merged into different teams you know uh, and then I guess the other one that, that I, I was particularly interested in um, it's the the one I in, with Esteban Beckerman who's an Argentinian football historian who's in, I interviewed him for my book as well um, and it's about the cross uh, river plate rivalry between Uruguay and Argentina and how important that was uh, promoting the game in Football's nascent an period. I mean, we've already alluded to earlier about how Argentina and Brazil are big rivals now. But that only really came about, um, you know, since kind of World War Two. The before, you know, up to the 1930s and particularly in the 20s, when football was coming a really big important part of both Uruguay and Argentina's international prestige. Uh, there, the kind of local-born population putting their own stamp on the game. It was really important to have that cross cross kind of River Plate rivalry and um, hearing the history of that was just you know fascinating.
0: I should say uh, that I omitted to ask you what the other championship playoff final was just in case the listener is screaming at the radio so what was the other one?
1: Oh okay the other one was back in 1991 I think it was when Brighton and Hove Albion played which is kind of like I grew up between in in South London and then kind of in Kent so kind of Brighton in my teens was within reach we used to get the Goldsmith quite a bit when they went to the playoff final in 91 uh, which uh, against Knox County won and went up to the top flight and I think that was just before the Premier League was mm-hmm. launched so yeah that was I mean, the old Wembley uh, and it wasn't sold out I remember that distinctly <laughs> how nice is it um, that, and that was, that was a f-
0: you're signed to pitch and the Camelins are both huge fans of Brighton have you exchanged <sighs> Brighton related banter
1: no, not at all, actually. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite open. To, uh, uh, yes, I'm a lap screen spot range supporter, but I'm, I'm kind of club agnostic, as you probably guessed, by the fact that I'm a ground hopper. I'm not really that emotionally attached to anyone. I am a member at Brighton because purely because it's you know close enough for me to go with you know, members of my family that I can actually just mm-hmm. you know go and watch top flight football in a nice, really nice environment. Uh, the Amex is one of the few modern arenas which actually has really good um, aesthetic it's, it's very functional if, you know get the fan coach in and get out again um, in no time um, you know a bit different catching the train uh, but it's like I, I think it's one of the better of the modern stadiums by a long way so so it's a really nice setting in South Downs
0: similar to West Ham but you don't have to walk through a shopping centre to get to Brighton I've been to the Amex
1: well, uh, the yeah I would say that the yeah, the London Saints a very different experience. Um, yes. uh, the annex is wonderful, and it's designed for football. And I mean, it's been used for other things. It's sort of where Japan beat South Africa at uh, Rugby World Cup not so long ago, if you remember. So yeah, the Eddie Jones the game. Trouble.
0: But the, the trouble with Brighton is that there's nothing bad to say about them. They've got a wonderful owner who's a fan, mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. good CEO, very good playing staff. They've got a very forward-thinking manager. Uh, and, of course, there's this story this season where... The expected goals haven't been matched. Brighton are underachieving based on the positions they get to when they have a good shot on goal. Do you pay much attention to all these statistics and XG and PPLs and whatever they're called? Um, well, I guess
1: football is like any business, really. is data led in performance on your uh, on the pitch. Is, um, you know, if there is a goal to chances ratio, that's a problem. I, I mean. It's, I don't know really, I don't really follow much about episodes up to other people to sort of like analyse and, <laughs> and decide. But I think um, ultimately, um, like Norwich, like there's other sort of similar sized clubs. It's just, they have, you know, you should have, as a fan, you should have your expectation realistic really of where your team should or shouldn't be. There's no divine right to be anywhere really. Uh, you know, man, you have been relegated, um in the 70s, recently as the 70s Man City, like I said. Chelsea weren't particularly anywhere in the 80s. You know, it's anybody really Arsenal and Everton that have actually got longevity almost, you know, more than a century in Arsenal's cases in the top flight. So no one really has a divine right to be, have any particular league position. Uh, and I think the, the smaller the club gets in terms of um, finance and, and fan base and things like that, the, the more realistic you have to set your expectations of realistic league finishes.
0: Uh, we're talking on April 8th, which is a significant day for Newcastle. You may not have seen this, or maybe you did, at 10 o'clock. Quoting Chris Wall, huge and ambitious new Newcastle Fans Trust initiative. The 1892 Pledge Scheme is a long-term project which they hope will one day see fans buy a stake in Newcastle. Now, that's fascinating for a number of reasons, and I'm sure you'll read about this in the coming weeks. And You've been to St James's Park, I imagine. You know about Newcastle as a city. Is it going to work?
1: Um, um, I've got, it's very strange just because of, I guess, the circus I moved in. Um, I seem to have met more Newcastle fans than any other club really oh. <laughs> um, always seem to be unhappy about something the thing is with Newcastle, I mean, the ground is amazing I've been there non-match day just w- went around there walk around it once and I was up there again with work um, and it's in the you know it's above the hill isn't it, it looks down on the town and I understand what it means to uh, the, the city and it's very iconic again like I said in the 90s nin- they came very close to winning something but they haven't won I think since the, the late 60s and that is for a club of their size, um, rightly something of a failing. And, they, and um, so any initiative to to change that, um, is, you know, would be welcome. But I, I just, I don't know, it just seems to, as a club, just seems to have, um, um, I don't really know what I can add to that, really.
0: <laughs> to <be honest. laughs> yeah. Well, insert your own word. Look, Mike Ashley tried to sell it um, no, to a Saudi no, Arabian it. firm with investors who had... It's just the, the Amanda Stavely situation. I read it in private eye. It is absurd what's going on legally with that. And then Mike Ashley has kept that club on. I would. This scheme is going to get a lot of coverage because if football is fans, uh, Newcastle, as soon as they get it right off the pitch, it's going to really, really fly. But they're just treading water. And sure, if you want thing.
1: to sell a club, you're going to get more money for it being when it's in the Premier League than you would if it was in the Championship.
0: Yes. So I wonder, hmm. by the time this goes out, we will know whether Brighton and Newcastle have stayed up. I it's not must...
1: tempting fate here, but if you look at the defensive record, Brighton have got the far best goal difference of anyone down there. And I think given how well they played against the likes of Man the other day at the time of recording, um, you know, no one's thrashed them this season. And so I think, that, you know, ultimately they will kind of get enough. They've got a six-point gap at this point. I think it is, but, you know, cushioned, so to speak. But I think they'll probably... You know, gonna be famous, last words by the time it goes out. But I think they've got enough in, I think in the so tank, shall we say?
0: 18 yeah, months to, ago, to Chris Houghton was deposed. Graham Potter came in. Brighton beat Watford 3-0. And it was no surprise oh. Watford went down at the end of the season. Brighton are oh. one of those clubs. It's a city with a football team. I think the Premier League just... It's nicer with Brighton in it because my friend Gary can go down and go to the flea market and eat some good cuisine. But its I've been a few times to the city, to the Fringe and to stay uh-huh. there just overnight. And it's one of my favourite cities on the surface. It must be separate. a really
1: good place for, for an away day. I mean, it's like Blackpool or something like that. You know, it's you know, one you'd have thought as an away day people would enjoy. There's a, you know, there's always, I mean, if I could give a little shout out, even if you don't, uh, if you go to Brighton and there's game, say it, the annex on a on a Sunday or something then if you go in on a Saturday then I either check out Lewis which is just a 10 minute train ride away or Whitehawk which is a, new, uh, a non-league club with a really really good culture a bit like Clapton a bit like yeah. um, similar sort of feel just to the east and a beautiful setting just out, out under the South Downs uh, or even Worthing, Worthing non-league team from the West City as well. So there's, there's plenty of other options if you can want to make, make a football weekend out of just going to, to Brighton and its surrounds. And Lewis is a nice community club. Um, Whitehawk's got a lot of, you know really nice fan base and a lot of character. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely just kind of think beyond the Amex. Yes, <laughs> if you're absolutely. Going to the Amex.
0: Lewis, we should say, uh, equal pay. The women's team are paid equal to yeah, the men, exactly. which is wonderful. Exactly. Um, I have I to say that... Outsideright.co.uk refuses pitches from betting and gaming comps, applause emoticons. Um, It must be painful getting all these invitations because the fun stopped ages ago, and yet the fun is still going on. Uh, If you could change one major thing about football at a non-elite level, what would you change? I just think there's such an opportunity for non-league clubs
1: to tap into a local community um, and get and sort of bolster their attendance either through the match they experience either through ticket prices through advertising even just in your local community a bit more know that it's there on their doorstep and the, the people can support it they don't have to go and you know travel into London and watch you know one of the big clubs for 70 quid you know say they support Arsenal and Arsenal are away and they're a season ticket holder well go to your local club the, you know that the day they're not playing because you'll get entertainment you'll get you know goals um there are some really good non-league cultures out there like we've mentioned Dij, Clapton, um, Whitehawk even Eastbourne Town have got some you know ultras which which create a great little atmosphere you can discover these places on your doorstep if you go and find them Uh, and if I were a non-league running a a non-league club I'd look at my local uh, catchment area and I'd see what I could do who sort of bolster the experience i think one of the clubs that's really done this really well uh it's forest green rovers for example who if you know they've got an ethos um every green it's got a vegan um food on, on offer and so they're just kind of living and breathing that that ethos all the way through the the um you yeah, know the club really
0: yeah they've also got an artist in residence who i think is james blake <laughs> um, is the artist in forest green a club in nailsworth up a hill um I'm fascinated to talk. I haven't spoken to Dale. I know there was a Guardian piece about him just the other week. Um, yeah, not okay, no. there, are, there are many ways to run a football club. Some are run badly. I'm pleased that Brighton have run, run well. I'm pleased that eventually Tony Fernandez has let Les Ferdinand make some decisions because QPR have just misman- been mismanaged for many years. It's Mark Warburton, the manager, fine? Very good at youth level. Uh, you've got a lot of money from Eze. Do you feel any attachment at all to QPR now
1: oh yeah I mean the last game I went to before lockdown was uh, against Derby County last February with a friend of mine who was kind of in London at the time um, so yeah I mean I want them to do well I want them to go up um, I just kind of i got to that point where I'm kind of um, I just look out for results really mm-hmm. um, rather than kind of watch or anything like that and that's pretty because like I said Partly because the ground hopping has become a habit that I've just diluted. <laughs> so, I mean, you go about, you sort of end up getting a team in every country, really. So uh, I'm sitting there on, on results app, whichever that's, you know, BBC, for example, and I'll be looking at it, scrolling down, going, yeah, yeah, how are, you know, Queen's Park Rangers doing? How are Gillingham doing? How are Maidstone United really? doing? How's so it's like your enough? own pools um, card,
0: but with no money riding. Yeah, you. Valencia, Dependent. Fiorentina,
1: Saint Etienne, yeah. um, you know, how's Bilanxish doing? But in, in Portugal, you know, these are sort of, I, you know, these are you know, favourite clubs that I've seen over the years and I have a of an affinity
0: for. I spoke to Neil Jensen, whom you may know. Uh, Neil is a portfolio fan who has many, many teams throughout the years, and he runs um, Game of the People. That's him. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's Mr. Game yeah. of the People, uh, a Chelsea fan of some repute. And you, Chris Lee, are outside right. Monsieur, outside mm-hmm. right. Senor, mister... Outside, right? right.co.uk. Uh, what have you got in the next few weeks? Or is it all plug, plug, plug for origin stories, colon the pioneers who took football to the world? Well, by the time that your, your, this goes out, people would have,
1: um, kind of heard, I guess, uh, what, the po- um, there's in the podcast, but I'll just give a little shout out. I am um, the great thing about having a podcast and blog is like a test run material, um, without giving too much away, I'm working on a second book, so you'll see a lot of historical politics type features appearing on the website uh, over the next year or so. You know, keep an eye out for that as well. So there'll be more hopping thing. I'm getting sort of more and more obscure. Really, the places going. So, Switzerland and Malaysia re- recently, and in Indonesia. Um, and I've got some like a couple of authors upcoming as well, which will be like by the time this goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, there'll be a lot more sort of history of politics and football coming up over the next year or so so look out for those there's a few on there already which uh, I'd look out for which includes um, Club Esportio Júpiter from uh, Barcelona uh, and their history which they played captain last year in a family so they've got a very sort of like uh, really interesting history and then there's a great long read I had uh, when I interviewed the director of a film about the Académica de Coimbra team from, uh, from Portugal and who did a big stand against the dictatorship there in the 1969. F- um, that's the Portugal final, was this Portuguese Cup final, uh, and that is um, some, a story that's little known in the English language, actually, if at all. So it's great to, to be able to sort of bring that out and give it some attention.
0: I know the Eurovision story that at a particular moment in Eurovision there was a coup that was initiated by a particular line of a song that Portugal took, but I don't know that other story. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard that. That was a uh, well, the Carnation Revolution, 1974.
0: Yeah, seventy three, seventy four. 74. And um, by the yeah. way, we're t- this will go out uh, the day before Eurovision. Will you be watching that, okay. or will you be doing something else?
1: Well, you know, i have uh, been to all these like Euro Euro 2016 yeah, and Euro, World Cup finals. I've actually been to a Eurovision final as well. The Isn't last it time. great? I was in uh, England. Well, yeah, I, it, I say what I say. It was great. I mean the. Um, uh, I mean, it's a great spectacle anyway. I enjoy watching it. and I loved the, the film, by the way, with... Um, Play Ya uh, Ya Ding Dong, yes. Yeah, that one, which came out last year. But the um, I went last time, It was in Birmingham, I was a student down the road, and we, we went along to that, it was interesting. Um the year that Israel won with done International. Yes. Well, I, th- I mean, the UK hasn't won it since, and we probably won't win it again, because it there are a lot more countries now, let's, let's face it, not particularly popular at the minute. So, you know, it's not going to... Um, We don't put the best songs forward, I think. So I don't think the UK's
0: going to win it. No, I I don't know. I think, I can't remember. Actually, I will just go now because all the songs are available. Uh, The favourite is Malta next year in Valletta. Yeah, followed by France, Switzerland, Bulgaria and Italy. We are on the betting uh, just ahead of Australia. 126 to 1. We're not going to win. No. Never mind. Uh, but we can win by reading pieces on UK and then Origin Stories, which takes its place in the football library. I'm delighted you've written this book. I can't wait for the follow-up, which, does it have a title or can't you say?
1: I'm not going to talk about it just yet. I mean, uh, some people do talk about it, but I just want to see how, you know, I've got a lot of... Published to do around this book first before mm. I start confusing people by talking about a second one. And
0: <laughs> but, where can um, you
1: know.
0: where can people feedback? Where can they complain? I'm sorry that your year is wrong. Uh, where can they go?
1: Well, message me privately on outside right rather than do it publicly <laughs> or uh, email me. Yeah, if you see something, I'm sure there's some something somewhere. <laughs> but um, you know, it's um, I'm all I'm all about. Um, it's all about learning and improving.
0: Yes, and it is Twitter outside right.
1: Um, Outside right, W-R-I-T. But of course. E and Instagram and Facebook.
0: Muchas gracias and have a wonderful time promoting this book.
1: Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Like Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh!